crossing the sea ice in front of the huge glacier extending out from the fjord at 79 degrees north, Mulios saw bear tracks. Excited about this much longed for opportunity to provide some fresh meat for the expedition's team and the sledge dogs, he tells Brunlund and Tobias to follow them and hunt them down, even if it takes all day. The expedition's team and the dogs were all beaten up by two continuous weeks of forced marching, and the starving dogs had not the lashings, making it hard to keep control of the sledges. Later that day, the Greenlanders returned with the bears on their sleds. The dogs, 70 or 80 in all, are extremely hungry, and as the men begin to cut up the bears, the dogs commence to lunge at them. To keep the men who were doing the butchering from being bitten, six men stand in a ring fending off the dogs with whips while the remaining four cut up the bears. The dogs become so frantic to get at the meat that several eventually attack the men like wolves, ignoring the whips and blows and try to bite them. The 80 dogs, overwhelming the six men standing guard, rush at the carcasses all at once so suddenly that the butchers are forced to flee. The dogs then strip the bears to the bones in 15 minutes. Later that night, the expedition leader, Alfred Wegener, heard his dogs barking outside the tent. Grabbing his gun, he crawls out of the tent to investigate, only to find a polar bear barreling straight toward him. He manages to get his gun up just in time and with a single shot kills the polar bear. The dogs are so full from their afternoon gorge that the men roused by the gunshot are able to cut up this bear in peace. These events, which for many of the most intrepid outdoorsmen would be the anecdote of a lifetime, was covered in Wegener's diary by the laconic entry. We found fresh bear tracks. The Greenlanders Brunlund and Tobias took off at once with empty sleds and shot a bear and two cubs. Stopped. Big dog feeding. I saved a good piece of bear meat for my team. Hi everyone, Chris here from the Geology Podcast Network. In this podcast, we tell the amazing stories of geological expeditions of yore. As cliche as Newton's axiom, standing on the shoulders of giants has become, for geologists, this is especially true. Whether it be the orogenic history responsible for James Hutton's famous unconformity at Sicker Point, or Chaim Ganser's Himalayan expeditions disguised as a Buddhist pilgrim, it is upon their shoulders that we stand to uncover the geologic mysteries around the planet. We will explore the stories of intrepid men and women whose adventures and discoveries put humanity on a course of greater understanding of how our planet works and how the geologic past has shaped our present. Today, we've got Jana Liebman and Bryant Ware, two geologists from Perth, Australia, who are going to share with us the first episode of Geological Expeditions of Yore, talking about the father of continental drift, Alfred Wegener. Take it away, Bryant and Jana. Thanks, Chris. This is Bryant Ware, and I am a geology researcher from Perth, Australia, here with Jana Liebman. Welcome to this episode of Geologic Expeditions of Yore. Hi, welcome from my side as well. My name is Jana Liebman, and I am a geology PhD student currently studying in Australia. But originally, I'm from Berlin, Germany. So today, Jana, we are going to talk about a personality that actually inspired you to become a geologist, correct? Someone who is also from Berlin. That is exactly right. 
Surprisingly, despite being best remembered for his important contributions to the field of geology, he was not a geologist. So we're not talking about someone who was a geologist by trade, so to speak. That is true. He was trained in astronomy and pursued a career in atmospheric physics. So then, who is going to be the topic of this episode? This episode is on the adventurous life and tremendous scientific impact of German researcher Alfred Wegener. For those who may not immediately recognize the name, Alfred Wegener is the originator of the theory of continental drift. The horizontal movement of continents, which was an important foundation and building block of the modern theory of plate tectonics. But as mentioned, Alfred Wegener was not a geologist to start with. His main scientific interests were actually in meteorology and polar research. But from a young age, he had a multidisciplinary curiosity to solving problems. Alfred Wegener was born in 1880 in Berlin as the youngest of five children. As school children, Alfred and his brother Kurt were able to convince their mother to give them a room in the orphanage that was managed by their parents. The brothers then turned this room into a chemistry lab. Alfred would later downplay the seriousness of their chemical experiments. He said that they generally only succeeded in turning their weekly allowance into fumes and booms. But maybe this early experimenting, unobstructed by safeguards and without adult supervision, laid the groundwork for the Wegener brothers' fascination with thermochemistry and thermodynamics. Years later, after the two brothers, Alfred and Kurt, had completed their university education in a variety of science classes, amongst others meteorology, they were both hired by a meteorological station as technical assistants to conduct manned weather balloon flights in order to study the three-dimensional structure of the atmosphere. In doing so, Alfred and Kurt set a new world record for the longest continuous balloon flight, 52 hours. This is how Alfred started his career as a meteorologist. His dedication to meteorologic science led him to embark onto multiple expeditions into the inland ice of Greenland, which back then in the early 1900s was an extremely risky endeavor. Alfred Wegener's journal entries provide insights into the harsh conditions the expedition members had to deal with. Here's an excerpt from Wegener's journal about the first Greenland expedition. Even those familiar with the special difficulties of night ascents accomplished in Europe can scarcely begin to imagine how much force of will it takes to carry out these measurements here. The primitive equipment, the complicated manipulations and tinkering connected with hauling out and assembling of the cuts, the attaching of the measuring apparatus, the temperature and wind measurements, and so on. All of it done in pitch darkness and deeply drifted snow at temperatures more than 20 degrees Celsius below zero, with winds that even if they are rarely more than 23 to 33 miles per hour, still in Arctic regions have to be classified as storm winds. The results are invariable. After a short time, one is forced with a lantern blown out with frozen fingers, toes, or nose, and with eyes glued shut with snow to stumble back to the house. In the mornings, we are unbelievably sleepy, and I have too little desire for work. Even though I am continually occupied by my tasks, I must admit to myself that I accomplish unbelievably little work. What one accomplishes, feels, sees, discusses here in the course of a week, one could do, feel, see, and discuss at home in the course of a day without needing even to hurry. I think the only thing we work at harder here than at home is sleeping. And yet, Koch, the expedition's cartographer, and I must count ourselves as among the most active here of all the expedition members. And I am very steady in making observations, yet I am all the while acutely conscious that I am doing shamefully little.
This expedition took two years in total, meaning that the team had to spend two seemingly endless, dark and depressing winters in the Arctic. After such formidable, exciting experiences during those harsh Greenland conditions, how did he get from meteorology and atmospheric science to his continental drift hypothesis? During Alfred Wegener's years as a lecturer at Philipps Universität Marburg, one of his colleagues invited him to his office to show him a large format world map. A few days later, Alfred Wegener wrote about this encounter with his colleague in a letter to his later wife, Elsa Köppen. My next door neighbor, Dr. Taka, received a large format atlas by Andre for Christmas. For hours on end, we stared admiringly at the stunning maps. When we were doing so, an idea occurred to me. If you could take a look, please, at a map of the world, doesn't the east coast of South America fit exactly in the west coast of Africa as if they had formerly been continuous? It tallies even better if you look at the depth chart of the Atlantic Ocean, and instead of looking at the current continental margins, compare the margins of the continental shelves where they plunge into the abyssal ocean. I'm going to have to pursue this. So that story, that may sound a little bit like a legend of noticing the congruent coastlines of South America and Africa, is in fact true. Yeah, and I'm sure that most of you, either when first learning about plate tectonics in school or at a natural science museum, have done that little puzzle game of connecting all of the continents to form Pangaea. Yeah, that is basically how it all started. So pursue this curiosity he did. Surveying the literature, he learned that identical fossils and sedimentological deposits can be found on different modern continents. In 1912, at the age of 31, Alfred Wegener gave talks at German universities and published two papers proposing that the Earth continents move horizontally. Within the geology community, reaction to Wegener's theory was almost uniformly hostile and often exceptionally harsh and scathing with most of the blistering attacks aimed at Wegener himself, an outsider who seemed to be attacking the very foundations of geology. To name just a few examples, the president of the prestigious American Philosophical Society called Alfred Wegener's theory utter damned rot. Another American scientist said, if we are to believe this hypothesis, we must forget everything we have learned in the last 70 years and start all over again. And a British geologist claimed that anyone who valued his reputation for scientific sanity would never dare support such a theory. Most geologists eventually dismissed his theory as a fairy tale or mere geopoetry. Actually, because of this abuse, Wegener was not able to attain a professorship at any German university. Fortunately for him and those of us future generations of geologists, the University of Graz in Austria seemed to be more tolerant of controversy, and in 1924 it appointed him professor of meteorology and geophysics. Three years after those first talks on his continental drift theory, Alfred Wegener published what would be one of the most controversial, yet become one of the most influential books in the history of science, Die Entstehung der Kontinente und Ozeane, translated as The Origin of Continents and Oceans. Yes, and within this book, he presented evidence from a number of disciplines within the earth sciences for the relative displacement of continental masses. He elaborated on the similarity of rock formations and the fossil record in different continents. He noted that when you fit Africa and South America together, mountain ranges and coal deposits run uninterrupted across both continents, writing, 
It is just as if we were to refit the torn pieces of a newspaper by matching their edges and then check whether the lines of print ran smoothly across. If they do, there is nothing left but to conclude that the pieces were in fact joined in this way. In his theory, Wagner also offered a more plausible explanation for mountain ranges. According to the cooling, contracting Earth theory, which was the preferred theory at the time to explain the Earth's uneven surface, Mountain ranges formed on the Earth's crust as wrinkles form on the skin of a drying apple. If this were so, however, they should be spread evenly over the Earth. Instead, mountain ranges occur in narrow bands, usually at the edge of a continent. Wagner said they formed when the edge of a drifting continent crumbled and folded, as when India hit Asia and formed the Himalayas. As a meteorologist, Alfred Wegener also presented a number of arguments out of the field of climate history, like for example coal deposits in Antarctica that implied a once tropical climate in this region, glacial deposits in today's Sahara Desert, and tropical plant fossils that were found in Spitsbergen in northern Norway. Wegener postulated continental drift was the key to these climatic puzzles. So together with his father-in-law, geographer and climatologist Vladimir Köppen, they plotted ancient deserts, jungles, and ice sheets on paleogeographic maps based on Wegener's theory. And suddenly, the pieces of the puzzle fell into place, producing simple, plausible pictures of past climates. Evidence of the Permo-Carboniferous Ice Age era that peaked some 280 million years ago, for example, was scattered over almost half of the Earth, including the hottest desert. On Wegener's map, however, it clustered neatly around the South Pole, because Africa, Antarctica, Australia, and India had once comprised a southern hemisphere supercontinent, Gondwanaland. Wagner considered such paleoclimate validation one of the strongest proofs of his theory. In his book, Alfred Wegener proposed that the modern continents we see today once had all been merged together into one big landmass that he called Pangaea. Perhaps the best summary of Wagner's revolutionary theory was provided by countryman Hans Kloss, who said, It placed an easily comprehensible, tremendously exciting structure of ideas upon a solid foundation. It released the continents from the Earth's core and transformed them into icebergs of gneiss or granite on a sea of basalt. It let them float and drift, break apart and converge. Where they broke away, cracks, rifts, trenches remain. Where they collided, ranges of folded mountains appeared. Alfred Wagner unfortunately passed away in 1930 at the age of 50 while returning to West Camp for making a life-saving delivery of food to two of his weather researchers spending the winter of 1930 deep in Greenland's ice pack before his wild concepts of the earth and how the surface was shaped were ever fully embraced by the majority of the scientific community. The theory of continental drift, however, would become the spark that ignited a new way of viewing the earth. Later on, in the 1950s and 60s, after a series of confirming discoveries in paleomagnetism and oceanography finally convinced most scientists that continents do indeed move, the theory of plate tectonics was born. Plate tectonics has proven to be as important to the earth sciences as the discovery of the structure of the atom was to physics and chemistry, and the theory of evolution was to the life sciences.
Today, it is difficult to think of a time in the study of the Earth without the backdrop of plate tectonics. Since Wegener's day, scientists have mapped and explored the great system of oceanic ridges, the sites of frequent earthquakes where molten rock rises from below the crust and hardens into new crust. We know now that the farther away you travel from a ridge, the older the crust is and the older the sediments on top of the crust are. The clear implication is that ridges are the sites where plates are moving apart. Where plates collide, great mountain ranges may be pushed up, such as the Himalayas or the Andes. If one plate sinks below another, deep oceanic trenches, such as the Mariana Trench, may form. Furthermore, chains of volcanoes are often found along these plate boundaries. Plotting the location and depth of earthquakes allows seismologists to map type and location of plate boundaries. Paleomagnetic data have allowed us to map past plate movements and paleogeography much more precisely than before. It is even possible to measure the speed of continental plates extremely accurately using satellite technology, which, by the way, is roughly the speed at which fingernails grow, as some may know from the introgeology class. We know now that Wagner's theory was wrong in one major point. Continents do not plow through the ocean floor. Instead, both continents and ocean floor form solid plates, which quote-unquote float on the asthenosphere, the underlying rock that is under such tremendous heat and pressure that it behaves as an extremely viscous liquid. Ironically, though, the lack of a credible driving force was the main objection to Wigner's theory, plate tectonics has been almost universally accepted despite the absence of scientific consensus as to its cause. What drives plate movement is still one of the most hotly debated topics in geology. Nevertheless, Wegener's basic insights remain sound, and the lines of evidence that he used to support his theory are still actively being researched and expanded. The following is from the correspondence between Alfred Wegener and his father-in-law on the hypothesis of a past supercontinent. Scientists still do not appear to understand sufficiently that all Earth sciences must contribute evidence toward unveiling the state of our planet in earlier times, and that the truth of the matter can only be reached by combining all of this evidence. It is only by combining the information furnished by all the Earth sciences that we can hope to determine truth here. That is to say, to find the picture that sets out all the known facts in the best arrangement and that therefore has the highest degree of probability. Further, we have to be prepared always for the possibility that each new discovery, no matter what science furnishes it, may modify the conclusions we draw. If this results in a series of astonishing simplifications, if it shows us the meaning and allows us to understand the entire history of the geologic development of the Earth, why should we hesitate to toss the old views overboard? Alfred Wegener had added a footnote to his original letter asking, is this perhaps revolutionary? As Mott Green writes in his biography about Alfred Wegener, he always showed great flexibility in modifying his views based on new research, and he seemed to take an almost proprietary interest in any work that he could see had been inspired by his own, even if it seemed to modify his previous views in some crucial aspect. This underlines that Alfred Wegener truly had the mindset of a great scientist. A year after Alfred Wegener had passed away in the Greenland Inland Ice, his brother Kurt took over his professorship in Austria and also traveled to Greenland to complete the unfinished expedition. 
Today, Alfred Wegener's reputation of one of Germany's greatest polar explorers persists. The German Institute for Polar and Marine Research is named after him. So is a peninsula in Greenland, craters on the moon and Mars, and even an asteroid. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it is very helpful when you rate and review the podcast. The Geology Podcast Network is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Editing and music production was done by Michaela Moore. Episodes of the Geology Podcast Network are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.